HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. HRN has a brand new look, but we're sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of food radio by becoming a monthly sustainable member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This episode is brought to you by Washington Wine. Download the Map My Washington Wine app. It's Map My W-A Wine. And get all the Washington wine right in your hand. Washington wine, this is now. Thanks for joining us on this hour of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. On today's show, we are embracing the essence of America's heartland through celebrating the iconic tradition of county and state fairs. As a former elected official in Ohio, I spent many a summer at county fairs all across my area. And at each one, there was always something I waited for all year long and looked forward to that. Like the milkshakes from the dairy barn at the Ashtabula County Fair. And I wanted to do this episode to bring that joy and sense of community that I experienced and that's embodied in county fairs to a wider audience. So to better understand the county fair, I assembled a group of experts to bring these colorful and flavorful events to light. Catherine Lambrecht, the president of the Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance, introduces us to the annual state fair family heirloom recipe competition. Authors Drake Hokanson and Carol Krotz bring us from Alaska to Indiana through their book, Purebred and Homegrown, America's County Fairs. But first, let's bring in Marla Calico, the president and CEO of the International Association of Fairs and Expositions, to introduce us to the history behind the Agricultural Fair. Marla, thank you so much for joining the program. Uh, and uh, please introduce our listeners to your organization, the International Association of Fairs and Expositions. What do you do? Hey, thanks, Capri. It's a pleasure to be with you today. The International Association of Fairs and Expositions, or commonly known as IAFE, um, we are a global organization which represents the interest and the betterment of agricultural fairs and expos all over the world. And to translate that to your listeners, that would be what we know dearly in the heartland as county fairs and state fairs. 
Well, and so I can't think of anyone better to uh, to talk to us about the history of the agricultural fair, uh, particularly uh, you know in the context of uh, the United States and in the heartland. But I know that its roots aren't just uh, you know here uh, on the continental United States or North America, right? It goes all the way back to um, the other side of the Atlantic. <laughs> Absolutely, it does. Agricultural expositions in England in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries were primarily... That's a lot of centuries. <laughs> a lot of centuries were primarily gatherings of the landed gentry to explore uh, and share ideas with one another. Uh, they gave awards for best seeds and best animals. I have a print from the Smithfield show in my office that shows it's a colorized print from the 1800s of champion Hereford bull and some sheep. Um, and, and so these were quite well established throughout England. And that English model came to the United States and the North American continent. Uh, there were two organizations um, in the United States, one in Canada that were chartered by the king to operate a, some type of a agricultural exposition. But the county fair and state fair as we know it today, organized in the United States, really came about in 1811. A gentleman by the name of Elkanah Watson uh, saw the need for wool for the coming War of 1812 so that soldiers' uniforms could be made and manufactured in the United States. And so he imported merino wool decided to merino sheep and, and he decided to show those sheep off to his neighbor because he wanted to get them interested in raising as well. And he organized the uh, Berkshire Agricultural Society in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And in 1812, 1813, they began to have an annual gathering in the fall, celebration of the harvest. And it quickly went from bringing your best animals and in, in, uh, people talking and swapping ideas and swapping genetics, so it were, to include what we now call the domestic arts, the knitting, the weaving, mm -hmm. creating of food products. And, you know, at that very first fair, of course, they had food stands and they actually had a type of ride. And from that time forward, you can watch the expansion of the agricultural fair, the county fair model, which was represented by common citizens uh, having an elected board of director. It just grew westward across the country as, mm -hmm. as our country grew. Right. And, and, you know, would you say that one of the reasons why um, the fairs grew to the West, you know, obviously as, as our population moved West, but because of the, the presence and the prevalence of, of um, agriculture as kind of as, as the, uh, the origin, the heart of, uh, you know, so many of the uh, places in the Midwest, you know, the Connecticut Res uh, Western Reserve and beyond? Oh, absolutely. The, you know, we were for many, many years, decades upon decades, an agrarian society. And so uh, to, to do so, to be successful in agriculture, you're always looking for better ways to do things, better ways to improve the genetics of your animals, more efficient ways, the use of new equipment. And so hand in hand with doing that, basically to survive, farmers needed to get together and to compare notes. And truly a county fair, a state fair is exactly mm -hmm. that, even today. Right. Uh, and um, so I would be curious as well, how many 
uh, of these agricultural fairs exist uh, in the United States and worldwide. I mean, I can just tell you from from my backyard in Ohio. I mean, you know, we have county fairs in all eighty eight counties, um, and and obviously a very large uh, state fair in Ohio. And and we are very, I think, similar to many of our neighbors. Um, so there has to be you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, of these agricultural fairs. Yes, certainly. Well, our organization, we are a voluntary membership organization. We represent right now about 1,100 fairs worldwide with members coming from primarily United States, Canada, followed then by Australia and the United Kingdom. But globally, there would be well over 2,000. There are probably 18, 1900 in the United States alone. We simply don't represent every agricultural fair out there because many are just simply tiny, tiny of events mm-hmm. that um, really are, are doing their thing, may not necessarily need our services. Similarly, in Canada, there's a lot of, of particularly in the eastern part, in yeah. Ontario and Quebec. So globally, I, I would have no doubt that we could say there are probably 3000 or more agricultural fairs operating today. Right. Well, I mean, with, you know, all food goes back to agriculture and everyone needs to eat. So and share the sharing those kind of expertise is, is I'm sure, very important to to all of that. With so many fairs, uh, agricultural fairs existing across the United States. Um, how are they similar and how are they different from one another? Sure. Well, we look at the program elements and um, they're, they're all very similar, but they're going to change from community to community. So at the base is the agricultural program, correct? And so the agricultural program, we typically look at that as some sort of a competition, the show ring competition. More often than not, we will see youngsters involved competing through 4-H and FFA 4-H. clubs. Mm-hmm. But we also see many shows that are the province of, of adult breeders. Uh, I, I think, for example, mm-hmm. the National Western Stock Show in Denver, I mean, that is like world class. If you're breeding any type of beef, sheep, hogs, you want to be there to show off and improve your genetics. But if you look at what agricultural is, again, look from east to west across the country. In uh, California, most fairs have wine competition, of course, mm, and it's becoming right. more prevalent as we develop, for example, more vineyards in the Midwest and in the East, but it's the province of California fairs. Olive oil, sure. that's the province of California fairs, correct? But if you want Absolutely. to be in New England, you're going to see draft horse uh, competitions. You're going to see oxen in competition, which you obviously don't see that everywhere. Same thing for different types of crops that will be featured. But agriculture is at the heart of it. The other components are what we call competitive exhibits. That would be the quilts, the cakes, the cookies, the photographs. Some of my favorite things, flowers. I mean, there's so many photography. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things. um, Absolutely. And again, the the variances are going to be some fairs. It may be only a 4-H show and only 4-H exhibitors can compete. Others, I mean, I think about Ohio State Fair. They've got a world-class art museum and world-class art show as part of that fair. The other component it would be food. <laughs> here, you know, well, that's what this show is all about. Exactly so. right. And used to be, when I talked about the program elements, I would lump food in with commercial exhibits, um, you know, the knives, the pools, the spas, the mattresses. But really, food has come into its own as a singular popular element, in many instances, driving attendance to the fair. And so yeah. when I think about fairs, large and small, 
they're always trying to focus on food, have new food, have crazy food, feature local food. Uh, and again, commercial exhibits are very important in many fairs. It's just a difference of scope. For example, I visited some county fairs in uh, the Heartland during the latter, early part of July, and some of them had only local exhibitors, you know, selling insurance or Tupperware mm-hmm. or things like that, while others maybe had some more regional or national companies participating in their commercial exhibits. The final two elements are not necessarily universal to every single fair, but are definitely common. Uh, One of those is obviously the Carnival Midway operations with the rides Mm -hmm. and the games. But in certain parts, particularly the upper Midwest, it's very difficult to get a carnival to come in and route through many county fairs. So they may not have a carnival operation at all. They may have work with a local games dealer for some portable games, for example. And then entertainment can vary from, you know, small uh, stages that feature only local entertainment to, uh, again, thinking about Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin State Fairs. They huge acts, huge, yeah. Huge, huge acts. And it's real, the concert business is really, really big. But those are the program elements. And so what happens is from fair to fair, you're going to see the regional influence. You will also see a difference in scale, right? From small to large. But what is truly the setting point, I think, for fairs is that each one is reflective of its own community. It exists to serve its own community. And we try really not to compare one fair to another because every community is unique. And that community could be strictly a county. It could be multiple counties as a regional event, or it could be, of course, a state fair. Well, I and I'm so glad that you brought this up because um, you know these fairs and and again my own personal experience each fair in just my my immediate regional area is very distinct is very different and you obviously uh, you know being part of the uh, IAFE have to have visited uh, you know dozens if not hundreds of fairs over over the years uh, so so tell us about one that may stand out to you as as. Uh, unique or or special in its own way. Well, I would like to point out one from your home area, the Holmes County Fair in Millersburg, Ohio. I love that Ohio just keeps coming up. (laughs) It makes me happy. Well, it's very interesting because in all my travels, and, and I visit dozens of fairs every year, I rarely go to two to one fair in back-to-back years. And in fact, it may be many years before I visit a fair again. But the Holmes County Fair, I had reason to be there in two different years. 2015, the last year that they were at their traditional home, uh, just out the edges of the town and in an area that was so prone to flooding, they were flooded yeah. most years to 2016 when they were there for the opening of their brand new facility, Harvest Ridge, just outside of town. The Holmes County Fair is typical of many county fairs in the heartland, operated uh, by volunteers, dedicated people from the community. The president of the fair that year was a gentleman who had an electrical contracting company, and the secretary Mm -hmm. worked for the implement dealer. And just good good people who love their community. Of course, Millersburg is right there in the heart of Amish country. That's right. That's right. 
But what they have done with this change in facility, they had a parcel of land that was donated to them. And then they had a gentleman whose life had been at some point in time impacted or intertwined with the fair, donated a significant amount of money to them to develop that fairgrounds. So they used that seed money and they did a tremendous campaign in the community to build Harvest Ridge. So I got to go see the site in 2015 and see the dreams that they had. I went back in 2016. I was there for the grand opening. And I have to tell you, I was crying because as they, they called off the names of people who had sent them money, it just wasn't the gentleman who left them the estate and the, the six figure or excuse me, the seven figure amount. It was kids Goodness. who donated mm. a portion of their animals that they sold. They, they told the story of one lady in a nursing home who said, I can only afford $5. But I wanted to go toward my fair. And that's just it. You know, throughout the time that fairs operate, fairs change lives. And that, to me, is the most important. And this Holmes County Fair, I think, is a classic example of how lives throughout that community have been changed through the years so that people from all walks of life wanted to support this new facility. And it is absolutely amazing and continues to grow. They have a full-time manager now on staff, Mm -hmm. and it's a major event business uh, bringing economic impact to the Holmes County area. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about the agricultural fair? Because, you know, not everyone is as familiar as you and I. And, and that's why we, we do these shows to try to introduce uh, some of these concepts um, to a larger audience. Sure. Well, just a couple of things. Number one, uh, when when your listeners hear something about their county fair, another county fair, or the state fair, I think they need to understand that those events come about because of a great deep and abiding passion to produce those events from a dedicated core of volunteers. In the instance of even the largest state fair, it still takes volunteers to make that happen. And it doesn't happen overnight. One of the challenges that fairs are facing in this uh, 2021 is that so many people say, well, you know, it only takes a couple of weeks to put the fair on. And yet so many have operated in uncertainty due to the COVID uh, pandemic. And so, you know, I hope folks understand that there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And quite honestly, as fair folk, we want it that way. You know, we want you just to experience the magic of it all. But it does take a lot of work, year-round work. It takes dedicated volunteers and leaders. It takes a dedicated community to support it. Virtually every fair in the United States is a not-for-profit organization. Very few actually receive funding. For example, Ohio is is unique in the world of county fairs that their state supports them. So, so, you know, these are true, true community events. Well, what a wonderful place to uh, to end our discussion. Uh, we're so thankful for you, your willingness to share your insights and expertise to introduce this wider national audience and around the world, because we are available via uh, podcasts everywhere, um, about these fairs that are so special to so many of us across the country. So thank you again. This episode is brought to you by the wine the world is talking about, Washington Wine. From its one-of-a-kind landscapes to a statewide culture of craft and innovation, Washington is made to make wine. 
That's why winemakers from around the globe are coming to Washington to set up shop and why 90-point wines are practically falling from the skies. Ready to sip for yourself? August is Washington Wine Month, meaning it's the perfect time to explore some wineries, 1,050 and counting, and try some of today's most exciting wines. The new Map My Washington Wine app makes it easier than ever, too. You can get to know all the wineries, tasting rooms, and vineyards, find nearby events, customize your ultimate wine trip, and more. Download the free Map My Washington Wine app. That's Map My WA Wine and get all of Washington wine right in your hand. Washington Wine, this is now. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. We're now joined by Drake Hokinson and Carol Krotz, authors of Purebred and Homegrown, America's County Fairs. Drake is retired from Winona State University in Minnesota, and Carol, when she's not writing books, is a physician's assistant. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Pleasure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Drake, I'll start with you. Um, how did, did you collectively decide, and then Carol, I want to hear your thoughts, obviously, as well, um, to, to start to write a book about county fairs. What was your motivation? Part of it is that there hadn't been a good book about the nature of the American agricultural fair since about 1935. And uh, we decided it was a colorful subject that ought to be photographed and researched. Uh, and it would give us a fine excuse to travel around the country and, and uh, talk to a lot of people and, and make some good photographs. Uh, it just seemed like a natural subject. And I had done some books in the past and Carol and I had done one book together before and we decided uh, this was, this was, this was a subject too good to pass up. Carol, what's your thoughts? Uh, it happened that we were on a long journey uh, when we, um, mm. this idea came to us and we were overseas and we were hiking day after day after day. And, and so you have a lot of time to think about it. And we were talking about what we missed about America. And one of the things was county fairs. And uh, after we talked about it for a long time, we said, somebody ought to do a book about fairs. And then we decided a little later on the journey, that should be us. So that's how that uh, idea came to pass. Well, and, and uh, you know, that uh, sort of idea became a reality. Obviously, I own the book. Uh, and it is beautifully done and, and really captures that um, that authenticity um, that we often talk about in, in county fairs that, that really uh, reflects the, the culture and the flavor of the, the individual communities that they're in. Um, how did you select the, the fairs that you went to um, and, and how did you approach doing this book? I, I recognize that it's, it's maybe a decade old now, but... There's still some, you know, truths in, at the core of uh, covering these county fairs. Um, Carol, I'll go back to you. Well, when we started, we knew we wouldn't be able to go to every fair in the country, and nor did we want to only select the biggest fairs or the smallest fairs or the eastern fairs. Or We really wanted it to be a cross-section of America. So what we did was uh, to get uh, an industry publication, and you're familiar, I know, with the International uh, Organization of Fairs and Expositions, and we got their publication and others, and they just have line after line of when county fairs are going to be. So we chose a section of the country each year 
in the summer when the fairs mostly occur. And we would just uh, put points on a map and try to go from June 3rd to June 8th to this one and June 9th to June 12th at this one. <laughs> and we just um, drew ourselves a little uh, chain of fairs that we hoped to get to. We would never know how long or short a time we want to spend at a fair. And of course, sometimes we'd get there and we, they were just getting set up so that left us not as much material. Other times we'd say, well, we'll spend two days at this fair and we'd be there six. So we just tried to get the cross section. And, and I, I feel like we were able to do that in um, uh, our book, uh, Purebred and Homegrown. We were uh, able to go to, uh, I think, about 97 fairs in 38 states or something like that, all across the country from Alaska to Georgia. So, wow. I mean, that definitely you're spanning uh, a variety of, I mean, climates and cultures and, and, and food. Um, you know, Drake, if I'm not mistaken, you have a, a journalism background. How would you approach, um, you know, identifying people to interview at these county fairs? Well, we'd show up at any given fair and stop at the fair office, and uh, the first question we'd ask, well, we'd tell them who we are and what we were doing. The first question we would ask is, "Is there are there events at this fair that we should see? Are there people at this fair we should talk to? We're working on this book, and invariably that led to a list of people. Uh, and beyond that, as you wander around, most of good journalism is a good conversation, and uh, as a journalist, you just kind of have a sense of where a good story is, and you and you you follow your nose. Uh, fair enough. I mean that that makes that makes quite a bit of sense, um, and um, I'm sure that you you were not short of, of potential subjects to uh, to reach out to and to to engage at these different uh, fairs. Um, Carol, uh, you mentioned Alaska. Um, at, uh, you know, as one of the states that you went to, and I'm sure has some of the most unique food traditions uh, on display in some of these uh, competitions. Um, do you have any examples of, of um, you know, comp- the, some of the competitions in Alaska and, and the experience that you had with food up there? Sure. Uh, it turned out that uh, the day that we went to the, it was the Deltana Fair in Delta Junction, Alaska. Uh, we had, of mm. course, taken quite a long trip to get there. We actually drove to Alaska uh, and we did other things besides fairs. But uh, when we showed up at the Deltana Fair, uh, we uh, again had looked at um, the program for the fair and we saw that there was a wild blueberry pie contest. So they had to bake their pies with wild blueberries that they'd picked themselves. And we thought that would be an interesting regional thing to uh, photograph and to interview people. Mm -hmm. So we got there and the uh, superintendent who was running the competition was getting all set up as, as would be the case and was kind of nervous though and kind of kept looking at her watch. And it turns out that only two of the three judges came and so she uh, was worried about that. And Drake very graciously offered me to be the third <laughs> blueberry pie judge. And uh, I, of course, I know what I like, but I wouldn't say I was a judge. So we were given strict criteria and uh, I helped 
judge the wild blueberry pie contest. And so that's an example of a, a real regional um, food. And uh, there are other ones in the canning competitions, Drake. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So at the Deltan Affair, there really was a, a, a very strong regional sense and, and a good sense of how Alaska is quite a bit different from much of the rest of the world. Uh, there was, a, as I recall, a, a contest for canned grayling, which is a which is a Alaska native fish. And uh, we didn't get to sample any of that, unfortunately, but it, it sure looked good. Uh, there were all kinds of other kind of regional things. There was a contest, for instance, for uh, the best um, uh, seal skin mucklucks. And uh, it, it just, you just really, you knew you oh, were wow. over 48. It was quite fun. That sounds unbelievable. <laughs> well, one of the things we tried to do was both find what was universal in fairs under certain circumstances. And then we also tried to seek out that which was regional and unique to that fair. So that was, uh, that was the two-pronged approach that we would, um, we would seek, you know. What really tells the story of all fairs and what have they done at their fair to make it um, regionally interesting? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Carol, because um, as, as you know, we're talking about these really interesting things uh, that are, you know, very specific to Alaska, um, you know, these uh, contests the, uh, are pretty much universal at any county fair that you go to. You know, people are fighting for the blue ribbon, you know, giant zucchini or, you know, um, pie. Those sort of things, you know, are uh, pretty much ubiquitous no matter where you are, um, you know, and, and the flavor comes through. And the other thing that, that seems universal to me is is food and the presence of food in one way or the other. Um, I, I want to turn it back over to Drake. Um, and, you know, Drake, can you um, maybe talk a little bit about um, how both sort of the competitions, as well as food in particular, since this is, you know, a, a show about food and culture, um, are, uh, you know, kind of a universal thread throughout uh, the, um, the structure uh, and the flavor of county fairs. Sure. Very much the flavor of county fairs. Food plays uh, a role in two ways in, in most agricultural fairs in the country. One, it's uh, uh, the underpinning of a lot of the uh, competition. It's pies, it's the tallest corn, it's the biggest pumpkin, etc. And this comes out of the roots of, of the idea of the county fair, which was to educate farmers and gardeners about about creating better uh, growing better food and preparing better food. So that's a long-standing tradition and much of the contests that go on in a fair uh, involve uh, food that you make at home that you bring and some judges sample and give you a blue ribbon and therefore give you bragging rights. And of course the other portion of the other role that food plays at the fair is that most fairs have interesting food either by a local church group or or traveling vendors or whomever. Uh, uh, you look forward to that food every year because you can't get it anyplace else but the fair. Somehow the French fries made by that French fry uh, trailer at the fair are so much better than the ones you can get at your local fast food place. There's something about fair food that draws people from all over. It's a major reason that a lot of people go to the fair. Normally you don't get to sample the prize winning pie, but by golly you can get you know a fried pickle on a stick. That's right. Uh, the, and, and Carol, uh, have you um, you know, Drake just brought up sort of the, the fair food that we would think about on, you know, sort of the the main, you know, causeway, um, you know, the different booths and trailers that you see. Um, did you end up seeing any or, or tasting, more, more importantly, 
any um, regional uh, specialties um, in any of those sort of fair food um, uh, stands? We we did uh, get to t- taste some regional food. For instance, when we were in uh, the Midwest, we didn't have a salmon dinner. But when we were in the Northwest, we for sure had, uh, they didn't have a fried chicken dinner. They had a salmon bake. And um, so it was, it was fun to experience that. On the other hand, in uh, uh, Indiana and um, I guess in Indiana especially, we went to a uh, fried chicken dinner that a church put on. This was not a a vendor, but a church put on, but it was uh, fried in lard. And uh, Drake was able to pick up on that. He said, I haven't had chicken this good since my great-grandmother passed. And that's because she made it in lard, too. So, not recommended, but See, the, it's, it's those, those taste buds bring you back. Yeah, <laughs> really do, really do. And we tried to sample really everything we could uh, at these fairs, from from taffy to corn dogs to even cotton candy and uh, just the whole range. I don't think I ever saw a salad at a fair, but we we tried everything <laughs> that we could get our get our. Yeah. Well, that's, you're right. I mean, people look forward to the stuff, you know, every year, you know, they, they, they know their favorites, they know where they want to go. And I know in my neck of the woods, for example, in, in Ashtabula County, Ohio, the, they have the, um, the 4-H, um, Holstein Club runs the Dairy Barn. The Dairy Barn has the best ice cream and the best milkshakes every year. Like it's the only time you can get them. And you just, you know, um, that that you're going to you know wait all year for that, and it's and the the lines are long just for that reason. Um, I, I want to wrap up our conversation, um, touching back on something that I think both of you mentioned, and that is these community dinners that are associated with the fair. So they're you know you know maybe put on by a community organization or the fa- local fair board. Um, they're not necessarily part of the fair per se. But they are part of, you know, the the fair culture in the community, uh, bringing everyone together to support the efforts of the fair. Um, and, you know, obviously food, much like that um, lard um, fried chicken, is the centerpiece of that. Well, one of the things about the fair is that it's a celebration of community. And we celebrate our community in lots of ways at the fair. We have exhibits of, of things. And one of the things that we come to the fair for is to realize we live in a good place with good people and, and good things going on. And one of the ways that that's pulled together is with different kinds of dinners, either church dinners or maybe a fair board-sponsored dinner, as you mentioned, Capri. Uh, one that was particularly memorable to us was uh, every Saturday night or perhaps it's Sunday night at the Johnson County Fair in Buffalo, Wyoming, they have a sheep feed. Uh, they bring in great lamb briskets and barbecue them, and it's a free event. I think it's a free will donation, but it brings people in from all over the county and probably a good deal further who sit and reminisce and talk to a neighbor they haven't seen in quite a while and eat fabulous lamb in a region that was known for many years for both uh, lamb and beef uh, raising. And it's a it's a celebration of community that happens once a year and I think is is fundamentally important to that to that place and these people. It's really quite a quite a wonderful thing about about the fair. Carol, what would you what would you add? Well, I I was remembering too that uh, people get so invested in this that um, they become it becomes central to their lives. And uh, we talked to one woman who was on a committee for doing a 
church dinner like this. And she said, oh, yeah, I've been on the committee for uh, a long, long time. She said, in fact, you have to die to get off this committee. She said, so so people really value it and uh, pour their heart into it. So no question about it. And it is the heart of, of these counties and these communities for year after year, decade after decade and generation after generation. Uh, I really, uh, Drake and Carol, thank you for for sharing your story. Um, before we go, just remind everybody the name of the book and where they can get it. Well, it's uh, Purebred and Homegrown, America's County Fairs. It's available any place that people buy books. I always think it's nicest to order from your local bookstore rather than the big online stores. But it's uh, easily available from University of Wisconsin Press published. But any place you buy books, you can find Purebred and Homegrown by Hokanson and Kratz. Well, I already own it, so I want to encourage everybody else to go out and get it. Thank you so much for joining us, um, and we'll see you at the fair. HRN is excited to unveil the new look of food radio. We have a new brand identity and a new website. Our site makes it easier than ever to discover both new podcasts and dig through the archive of 16,000 episodes. It's been 11 years since HRN started broadcasting food radio, and we've made it this far thanks to the support of our global listening community. It's because of member donations that Eat Your Heartland Out is on the air along with 40 other weekly shows. Your contributions gave HRN the security we needed to stay on the airwaves during the pandemic and are allowing us to reopen our studios. Becoming a monthly sustaining member of HRN shows me how much Eat Your Heartland Out and Food Radio means to you. At HRN, we're investing in the future of food radio. To do the same, become a monthly sustaining member of HRN. A gift of 5 or $10 a month gives our community the consistent stability it needs to keep the voice of America's food movement alive and thriving. Become a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Our final guest this hour is Catherine Lambrecht, president of the Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance. Catherine also oversees the organization's State Fair Heirloom Recipe Contest. Catherine, thanks for joining Eat Your Heartland Out. We're happy to have you. I'm thrilled to be here. I can't think of anybody better to join this show about uh, the intersection of food and culture in the Midwest than obviously the president of the Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance. Um, But you are a special guest for this episode because we are talking about fairs and and county fairs and state fairs. And um, the Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance has a very special program that they've been doing at state fairs. Um, tell uh, Tell us about it. Since 2009, we've been conducting the Family Heirloom Recipe Contest at various state fairs, uh, basically collecting recipes, their stories, 
Um, also the images, often they come in very nice displays, so we capture that as well. And then we put it on our website, and then from time to time they end up in book form. Oh, wow. So uh, how many states have you done? Um, let's tell you what states we haven't done. Okay, that's we haven't be done, easier. We haven't done it. It is. It, it's Nebraska, North Dakota, and Michigan. Okay. Why? Why, why those three states are, are not on the list? Okay. South Dakota, North Dakota, sorry, never believed me that we wanted to come <laughs> and do it. Honest to God, Michigan, when we started this program, their state fair had gone bankrupt, and it had been going on since like 1840-something. So something, or the state pulled its funding, I don't know the story, but it disappeared. It is back in a much smaller form, um, supported by Fifth Third Bank, and then in Nebraska, they never respond. And I've been told that's not unusual. Oh, well, hopefully these three states at some point will get on board because this sounds like such an interesting, uh, you know, project that uh, the organization puts on and, you know, really brings people out to both share and preserve their own, you know, family recipes. Um, So what's the criteria um, when somebody enters? The recipe, we'd like it to be in their family 50 years or more. They have to write a history story of how that recipe has worked its way through the family. You know, what occasions it might have been served, uh, who, who brought it to the family. Uh, we also wanted a prepared dish. Um, and then what I call kind of the beauty contest, and that's not <laughs> to sound snide, but it's like people show up with antique uh serving pieces they showed up with the the hand the stained and handwritten recipe from their relative you know and and so often pictures sometimes it's just things that around their lives and around food you know was it that sour cherry tree there might be a picture of that or did they raise chickens and there's pictures of children playing with the chickens things like that so it really the, the recipe is a conduit to tell a story then it is and also, the recipes that I like to see are the ones that have never been documented, mm-hmm. where the family just takes it out, almost takes it for granted. It's a family favorite, usually made by one person in the family, and then they go to heaven, and there's no trace of how to make it. And those recipes, especially if they document it now, finally, you know what? If they never bring it to our contest, we've accomplished our goal. I love that. I love that. Do you have any good examples of that um, in since you know in your travel since two thousand and nine doing this of that type? Well, we had one which was called "It Must Be Monday," and it was <laughs> basically she took like cornmeal batter and folded in all the leftovers from the weekend into this one baked item, and it, kind of was kind a, of like a pot pie or a casserole. I would say more in the casserole direction, but but when when they started the story, it began with "It must be Monday." That's so <laughs> you know, funny. like it's it's dreaded and it's loved at the same time. Oh, that's great! Did that recipe of uh, you know, just a bunch of leftovers and a casserole dish win? I believe so. It's been, you know, this is <laughs> the problem. I mix the stories. I love the stories. And sometimes I don't remember who won. I just remember all of them are winners. Unfortunately, we do have to select right. who win, does win. But 
you know, that's my challenge. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I get that. And I can, I can only imagine being in your shoes, how difficult that would be because, you know, really, I mean, every story is unique and every story, you know, and every recipe, because they are heirloom recipes from people's families that have been passed down, you know, generation after generation, you know, that, that is, you know, um, how do you judge one, you know, being better than the other, so to speak, but it does sound like it's about capturing that story. Capturing that story, and in fact, one of our judges was confronted at the Indiana State Fair, <laughs> and she goes, it's always about the story, it's always about the story. And, and he said, you know, it is 50% of the points. However, another, uh, one of our regular judges, uh, Jolene Katzenberger, at the uh, Indiana State Fair, she once held out a cake, and she says, you know, this is very likely the cake that everybody wants when you go and have a pitch-in or a potluck. Mm -hmm. She said, this is the cake. And she goes, the problem is we have 16 of all these wonderful items that are favorites. And, how, you know, we have to pick one, which means even a very good recipe is still maybe going home without winning. Sure, sure. I mean, but, and it's, it's about that context, too. I love that you brought up the, you know, sort of the antique China or the pictures and those sort of things. I'm just, you know, envisioning this in my head. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I've never seen this in action in, in, at the Ohio State Fair, which I feel bad about because I definitely want to see this in action and kind of am motivated to do do one of my own maybe one, one of these days since we certainly do. We certainly do have. Um, you know, you, because at the Ohio State Fair, you know, last year was COVID. Right. And this year, it's also COVID. They're, they're doing a a very bare bones version. And I don't blame them because there's a lot of money invested in these fairs. And if you suddenly have, you know, like we have at the moment, you know, people stop coming or reduce the crowd, there's money lost. Right, right. And I mean, all these fairs, these state fairs, I mean, they are annual events. They are huge money makers. They're big tourist attractions, um, you know, and uh, COVID obviously has had a big impact on, on them. But um, you know, you also mentioned, I remember in, in one of our conversations about how you can tell sometimes at these state fairs, um, you know, how the farmers are, are faring in the economy. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to state fairs like at Minneapolis and Indianapolis, uh, you know, it, you don't have any sense. But when you have one that draws more rural uh, participants, let's say, uh, Springfield, Illinois, uh, Sedalia, Missouri, uh, the Iowa State Fair, even though it's in a metropolitan area for that state, you can tell there's a decline in participation. And I talked to Arlette, who used to, well, she's now gone to heaven, but she was the superintendent at the Iowa State Fair. And she goes, Kathy, here's the deal. She goes, participating in the State Fair is a luxury. She mm. says there's cost of participation, there's cost of food, there's cost in being here. And she goes, when you have a tight year and you're, the crop is not doing well or didn't do well the year before, she goes, this is an easy thing to cut out. So we do see participation dip when there are economic issues. So I'm interested to see, I'm leaving next week um, for what I, <laughs> for uh, Illinois, Indiana, and Missouri, three days and a fair each day. And I'm very curious what's going to happen. Well, I'm jealous. I mean, that sounds like one heck of a fun uh, fun job to do. 
um, to, to travel around to those fairs. And, and speaking of, uh, let me kind of back up and, and put, uh, you know, this work with the state fairs and the heirloom recipes in the context of the Midwest, um, foodways, uh, organization. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, like, take a minute actually to, to introduce the listeners to the, uh, Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance and what you do and, and how this particular project fits into your mission. Okay, well, it, w- it was founded to um, celebrate and document the food and culture of the Midwest, which is really quite varied. You know, you, you know, like there's some regions where you could just throw a blanket and say, well, that's French or that's Creole. The Midwest, it's like every farm, every piece of land has its own culture. And uh, it's actually quite dynamic, <laughs> Oh yeah, well that's that's what this show is all about for that exact reason. Absolutely. So uh, you know, as part of what you do with the Midwest uh, Foodways Alliance, um, not only kind of try to capture the diversity but preserve the history. So uh, you know, as just trying to put this particular project in context to the work that the Foodways Alliance does. Okay, so in this case, so for years we documented this, you know, on our website. But you know, websites are ephemeral. You know, you don't pay the bill. The, for the web hosting, things disappear. Right. And uh, about two years ago was the uh, Illinois Bicentennial. And for years we had been talking about maybe, maybe, maybe doing a book. And there were several, let's say, uh, challenges that were suggested. And one was, you know, if the story's not good enough, we'll interview the people and rewrite them. Uh, pictures, we needed to have studio pictures. And... And we need to test all the recipes. And it occurred to me, the pictures that I take at the state fair, you can't replicate. Yeah. They're just, they're unique on their own. I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I know what you're saying because there's so much character that goes into these fairs that yes. you, can't, you can't replicate it. You know, you have to catch that moment. And I hate to say it, but looking at a book from Nigella Lawson also was helpful because there was one book where I just looked at every picture and it looked like she made it herself, took a picture. The icing wasn't wasn't even. There were crumbs on the plate. I was like, darn it, that's what I'm looking at too sometimes. So <laughs> I, it gave me some encouragement. I pretty much, except for typos and things, left the stories as stated because that themselves is a record. And as for testing them, well, you know, we've all dealt with recipes that are untested. And I somebody commented, he goes, this is really like a community cookbook. Well, to some extent it is. Right. But it's also the information, the documents and everything is going to go to the University of Michigan archives. Oh, they wow. have one that's specific for culinary um, collections. And I've already arranged it that all these things will go to the archive. So they won't be lost because that's the whole thing. You know, it's like what's lost. It's lost once it's forgotten. Right. Or in a recipe forgotten, or you never learned how to make it. And, and I went through that. My, my grandmother died when I was 15 and there were key dishes I loved, but never learned how to make. And she was one of those people where everything was spit spot. She just pulled things out of the fridge, pulled things out of the oven. Lunch was served. You didn't see the working elements. And it took two years to figure out the working elements and replicate those. And then once I did, I shared it with my family. (laughs) Oh, my God. And very painful, too. Especially when she could have just told me. (laughs) And I never had asked. 
Yeah, we, you know, we don't realize how important those things are. I have all of my grandmother's old cookbooks and a number of her, you know, handwritten recipes that from all over the place things. I mean, the real, you know, hardcore passed down Italian recipes, there's no recipe for it. Um, but, you know, a lot of the stuff from the, you know, the 50s and 60s and even the 70s, which she may have seen on a TV show or in a magazine and she recopied it down. And I have all these like legal papers and like notepads and they're all in my grandmother's handwriting with dates in the, in the corner. It's just incredible um, because it, it is this archive of your own family history, but also a snapshot in time of, you know, that that culture. As we know, I mean, there are things that are well extinct, you know, the, the weird jello salads and jello molds and things that people look at now and there's Facebook pages about that, you know, but some sometimes these things get carried on because they have a, a piece of nostalgia. And the fact that you are able to, you know, have it in a participatory, like this historic, you know, participation, I think is great. So, you know, people are coming out, they are sharing their stuff, um, but then ultimately, as you just said, it's going to be archived um, at the University of Michigan. It's going to be archived. And like I said, it's also in a book form. And I look at it this way. It's, it isn't so much that we're making money because we're not. It is really another way of protecting those materials. Because in all these different forms, you know, the, the one that's the, the least um, the least secure is the what we have on our website. Right, that's that, the I mean, one that, that disappears. Sense. Put it in a book, you know. If there's only ten of these books sold, and somebody still has that collectible, <laughs> you know, at least it's there. Well, where can where can our listeners get this book uh, if they wanted to? Because I mean, I, I if I heard this show, I'd be like, where can I? I want to see this, and I want to see if I can make some of these recipes and read these stories. Well, they can buy it directly from us. They can buy it from Amazon. They can ask for it via the uh, via their. Uh, Library? Uh, library. I don't know how many are out there in libraries, but you know what? If you ask and you ask enough times, it will happen. That's true. So what's it called and what's your website? It is, uh, so the book is Family Heirloom Recipes from the Illinois State Fair. And there will probably be a Missouri version because uh, coming up later this year because it's their bicentennial. Oh, wow. And then our website is Greater midwestfoodways.com and it's greater and i know if you have to explain it it's not it's not a good but it is an homage to the great lakes and the great yes i love it i love it i I think that i mean i i had a sneaking suspicion that that might be the case um but you know the great lakes and the great plains are two great aspects um of of our identity in the midwest and um this is exciting. I, I really, I got to check out this book. I got to see this in action one of these days. Uh, maybe I'll follow you around one day, Catherine, as you That'd go to these different, uh, these different fairs and, and check out how you judge and um, really enjoy, you know, the sort of, you know, uh, history being preserved, um, you know, one recipe at a time. Thank you. And you know what? We can make it a date for next year because I think Ohio will probably be back in action. Okay. Count me in. I am I am so ready. I think that would be a blast. And thank you for thank you. Uh, for being part of the show. And uh, hopefully I'll have a chance to ex- be part of the heirloom recipe experience next year. Um, great to have you on. Hope to have you back. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. 
Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.